The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. If you are new or just visiting with us, we are so glad, once again, so glad that you've uh, chosen to be with us here this morning. My name is Alan, and we have been in a series all year called A.D. Anno Domini. We've been looking at, uh, calling 2012, the year of our Lord. And so what we've been doing is looking at it as an actual relationship that goes through stages. And so today we're launching into uh, a new stage of this journey this year. Uh, it's about definition that we have looked at a number of different things uh, about Jesus. We've looked at a number of different stories, and what we're doing today is saying, well, can we define what this relationship is? Who is Jesus in our lives? And this is an appropriate thing for us to do in relationships because it's what we do in human relationships. When you're in a dating relationship, uh, there's some point uh, sometimes where we get to and we say we have to have the DTR talk, the define the relationship talk. Now, forgive me for being uh, sexist, but this talk typically is initiated by the female. Not always, but typically initiated by the female because it's the guy who says, things are going well. Why you got to confuse things by having us talk about the relationship? Once again, staying in generalities, women are vastly superior to men in terms of relationships, in terms of uh, going to a deeper place. And so women in general, uh, if there is tension or if there's misunderstanding, then they get together and they talk, and maybe they have a DTR conversation with one another and try to figure out, okay, who are we? What's going on? Are, are you my bestie? What's happening uh, with this deal? Uh, men uh, are, are a little bit more, uh, we just we want to have fun. We want to do stuff together. We want to build something. We want to grunt a little bit. And if, if there is tension or a misunderstanding or some problem there, all it takes is for one of them, one of us, to follow and then everything's just taken care of. We laugh and we go, oh, that was a good one. And what were we fighting about? And then we just kind of move on. It's really not that complicated. But what we're talking about today, okay, somewhat of a generalization there. What we're talking about today is defining the relationship as it pertains to our relationship with with Jesus. Who is Jesus in our lives? And that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? Father God, I thank you that uh, you are not just interested in inspiring us towards something more than what we could do on our own. You are not just interested in uh, setting something before us and giving us uh, the courage to go after it. In the midst of all of that, God, you want to have a relationship with us. That's what we celebrate here today, and that's what we want to dig into. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our journey this year, we've basically been looking at the story up to the cross. Most of what we've been looking at, the stories, the the things that we've been looking at so far this year have have been part of the gospel story. They have led up to the cross. We just finished last week a section called Apathy, where we get to a stage where we just kind of start to drift and we start to not care about relationships or particularly about our relationship with, with Jesus. And the story that, was, that started kind of the apathy journey was the story of Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, hey, will you just stay and pray? And they get sleepy and they just fall asleep. Yeah, we, we, okay, we'll, we'll, be, we'll do the best we can. They drift off, they get bored, and there's apathy that drifts in there. 
But that night, Jesus gets arrested, and the whole thing changes. The definition of their relationship with him dramatically changes, and it snowballs into an incredible story for the rest of the New Testament journey that the followers of Jesus, the disciples, enter into something. That Their relationship gets redefined in that. This morning, I want to launch by looking at one of the stories of, of somebody who was transformed by this experience, by this moment of Jesus' resurrection. And one of the disciples' name is Thomas. You're probably familiar with the story, but we're looking at it in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The New Testament begins Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are in the fourth gospel once again, as we were uh, last week as well. But we're in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. John says, now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So what has happened here is Jesus has died on the cross, he rose from the grave, and he had already appeared to all of the other twelve. Thomas wasn't there for some reason. I'm not sure where he was. I doubt he had a good excuse. Let me continue. But he said to them, this is Thomas, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put the finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. The definition of Jesus that we want to look at today is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It is perhaps the shortest yet most profound theological statement found in Scripture. Jesus is Lord. This got the first century Christians in a whole lot of trouble by embracing that, confessing that, saying that, believing that Jesus is Lord. Let me remind you, our New Testament story is found at a time at the height of the Roman Empire. The Roman, uh, Roman Empire, in, in the Roman Empire, uh, uh, you were allowed to believe whatever you wanted to. And so many people believed many different things, and there were many philosophical perspectives, and, and they believed in magic, and they believed in astrology, and it wasn't permissible for any belief system to eradicate the other belief systems. That just wasn't okay in the Roman culture. And so for these Christians to say Jesus is Lord, and it to be very clear above all else, that created some conflict in that culture. It was also tricky because the leader of the Roman Empire, the emperor, was referred to as a god, as deity. And so he himself was one of these gods that the Christians are saying, we will not worship you. We will not bow down and worship you. In the first century, that was the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire, and it's all part of God's story. And so in that first century, there were plagues and there were famines and there were earthquakes. And as a scapegoat, the Christians became the ones to blame. So they said because they're not worshiping the gods, the deity, the Roman leaders, they're the ones who need to be killed. 
Historians say that the Christians who were sent to the Colosseum were chanting, no king but Jesus. No king but Jesus as they faced the wild animals and certain death. Jesus is Lord in the first century was a very precarious proclamation. That phrase, that profound theological statement, that is the phrase that transitions us from being one of the 12 to being a Christian. It transitions us from saying, I want to be one of the 12. I want to get closer to Jesus. I want to find out more about who he is to find out if this whole thing is real. I don't want to stand at the very far back of the crowd and barely hear him. I want to be close. It's the transition from saying, I want to be close to finding out who Jesus is. It's a transition from that to Jesus is the Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord. Now, for us in our culture, the concept of Lord is a little bit tricky for us to get our minds around. We don't have much of a framework in terms of understanding what the concept of Lord is. I mean, the very launching of this country was a rebellion against those who lorded over the uh, original colonies. And so they're saying, we don't want to pay taxes to England. We don't want them lording over us, so we want to be, we want to separate. We want to be a free people. We don't have a positive history with the concept of lord, of lording over. Even the phrase lording over somebody is negative. It has a negative connotation. If somebody was going to be the leader of an organization that distributed illegal substances, they'd be called the drug lord. Shrek is the good guy. Lord Farquaad is the bad guy. And just the fact that they name him that in a kid's show, that's all part of our rebellious nature, all part of our rebellious deal. I'm from Canada, and we have the queen on our coins. And it, the, Canada is, part, is called a constitutional monarchy. And that means we have somewhat ties to England. England does not have any official power or authority. We don't, we don't pay taxes to England. Canada does not pay, pay taxes to England. But there's a celebration and an honoring of the queen of England. And so that's a part of our money, and it's it's a constitutional monarchy. I was walking this out with a friend of mine recently who just, who just said, yeah, I don't like that. I don't get that. I don't, I don't think that. I don't understand that at all. In the United States, we, we pledge allegiance to what? To the flag. To the flag. To an idea. To a concept. To an amazing concept. To a world-changing concept. We don't pledge allegiance to a person that the highest authority in the United States, of course, is the president. But we don't think about or refer to the president as Lord. What do we do with the president? We make fun of him. <laughs> That's what we do with the president. Because of this beautiful thing, freedom of speech, wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. <laughs> we got to watch those. And I did not have relationships with that woman. <laughs> Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, you know, whatever. I mean, we got people who get paid a whole lot of money to do, to do that really well. People who get paid to say, who's going to be the next president because it's my job to make fun of them. That's what we do. We, just, we are so far from understanding the concept of Lord. It's just tricky for us. It's just tricky in terms of our DNA, and we see it in our kids. 
We see that, that now in, in our culture, we have to be careful with how we discipline them, that kids sue parents, that there's a discomfort with authority, uh, both on the kid's side and on the parent's side. How exactly do I handle authority here? I'm the assistant coach of one of my kids' basketball team th- this year. And this Tuesday, the real coach wasn't there, so I had to step up and, and lead practice. And, uh, man, these are great kids. I really enjoy these kids. It's a great team. They're crazy. They're banshees. I mean, they, 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 have you ever told nine nine-year-old boys who each have a basketball to just hold the ball? It's an amazing endeavor. It's herding cats. They are, I mean, I'm saying, Joey, get off the swing. We're playing basketball over here. Would you come over here and, and stop dribbling his head? Would you stop doing that? We need to come here. Okay, nice shot, but hold the ball. Don't throw it at me anymore. Just hold the ball. Hold the ball. I don't get a lot done. It's crazy. And now we think, well, that's just kids. But as adults, we're not much better. Last week, I talked about this no-stopping zone at my kid's school. If you weren't here, I talked, there's this one corner where uh, parents like to drop off their kids because it's way easier than going in the line than everybody else is, but it's kind of an uns- it is an unsafe place to drop off your kids. And so I uh, perhaps was lamenting a little bit last Sunday about that, but there's a police officer who is a part of our church. And so on, on uh, this Monday, that next morning, he went and hung out there, and he gave four tickets. <laughs> There is justice in this world. He said, he came up and talked to me on a Monday afternoon. He said that he was writing a ticket to somebody, and while he was writing the ticket, somebody else pulled behind him, pulled around them, parked underneath the no-stopping sign, and let their kid out. And so he, his police officer, had to say, can you excuse me a moment? i got to give another ticket over there to somebody. To somebody who's just saying, don't tell me what to do. He was explaining to me that that just that day there was a fatal accident on the corner of 24th and Chandler. And the police, in order to manage the situation, had to put up cones and flares. And that people were coming up to the cones and flares and saying, i got to get through. And they were driving off the road around the cars in order to get where they're going. He's just giving out tickets all over the place to a bunch of us who are saying, don't tell me what to do. Don't lord it over me. The rebelliousness that is part of the DNA, part of the fabric of the United States, is a beautiful thing. It has led to freedoms that people around the world desire to have. It has led to an entrepreneurial spirit that is absolutely beautiful and amazing, but it has a dark side. Because it may lead us to have trouble with the concept of Lord. If that's who we are, if that's in our fabric, how can we get to the point of fully surrendering to Jesus as Lord? There's one area that I was thinking of in our culture that seems to understand this uh, pretty well, and that is our military that generations of people have consistently understood that there is a chain of command, and that chain of command is very important. One of my favorite movies is A Few Good Men. Actually, it is my favorite movie. I told my kid last night, it's, uh, we like to watch movies together, and I said, someday we're going to watch this movie together. You're going to watch it, and you're going to say, that's your favorite movie? But it is. It is my favorite movie. And uh, I want to show you a clip from it. And here is an exchange 
between, uh, it's a courtroom drama, A Few Good Men is a courtroom drama, and it's an exchange between the colonel and the defending attorney, and they're talking about the importance of following orders. Check this out. See, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, just play the movie. <laughs> and that we've heard enough from you, Alan, just play the movie, because some of you know, know what's coming up next. But, but friends, you can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls need to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you could possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago. Okay, I want to. Love that movie. He says, we follow orders or people die. Tom Cruise's character later, later on says, yeah, but we're talking about a highly intelligent officer. I mean, it's just, it's peacetime. He has the ability, don't you think, to decide which orders he needs to follow and which orders may be morally questionable? And the answer is no. We follow orders or people die. So who are we as a group, as a church, as a body? Are we kids on a basketball court or are we soldiers in the Marine? If we were a ship, would we be a cruise ship or would we be a battleship? If the captain of a cruise ship came up to you, how would you respond? I mean, I know what the captain of a cruise ship does. I've seen the love boat many times. I've seen many episodes. <laughs> Meryl Steubing walks around. He just makes sure the ship is going in the right direction and he has dinners with special guests. And if you are on the deck of a cruise ship and the captain walks up, you may or may not sit up from your lounge chair and say, hey, captain, it's the captain. I think it'd be a little bit different, however, if you were on a battleship and the captain walked up to you. I've never been in that situation, but I imagine it would be a pretty instant, there's an officer on deck. I have this picture in my office of the USS Arizona battleship that, of course, is memorialized at Pearl Harbor. I have this picture in my office as a reminder to me, and I've talked about this before a few years back, but that this place, this is not a cruise ship. Yes, we like to have fun. It's good to have fun. It's good to laugh. But we are a battleship. We are not a cruise ship that goes out and says, yeah, we're going to have a little bit of fun, do our tour, and then come back. Oh, that was good. We are a battleship that has a mission. We're going somewhere. The next stage, the final stage in our journey this year is mission. If you have your binder, it's the very last tab there. Mission. We're going to take a look at that in the final uh, part of this journey. But before we get there, we've got to define the relationship. Who is the captain? Let me tell you, I am not the captain. Jesus is the captain. Jesus is Lord. There's something that God is calling this church to do, to, to gather our resources and our talents to do something, and if it, we don't do it, it won't get done. Relationships need help. Marriages need help. Parents, new parents, single parents need help. Your friends, your family that you care about are headed towards an eternity without God. People around the world that we haven't met yet. People who need us to be a part of that, that God is calling us to be a part of that. Jesus is Lord. 
We follow orders or people die. That's a hard concept for us. Jesus is Lord. There's a major shift that happens in the New Testament story when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. It is the pivotal moment that shifts the disciples. Their story prior to and after is dramatic. It shifts those who were considering Jesus, who were following, who were others who were following where he was going. The resurrection was the transforming piece. It catapulted the disciples out of apathy. I want to take a look at a few verses from the book of Romans. If you're still in John, just go to the right. A couple more books. It goes John, and then it goes Acts, and then it goes the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 10... Beginning in verse 6, Paul says this, Romans 10, 6. Paul says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. Paul is saying here that we don't need to ascend into heaven, to go up into heaven and beg God for more information about who Jesus is to help us define this relationship. We don't need to go up into heaven. We don't need to go down in the depths to figure this out. We have enough information in front of us. It says the word is near. This is fascinating because he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy written thousands of years earlier, the beginning of the Old Testament, It was written by uh, Moses. Moses. The book of Deuteronomy is a collection of Moses' speeches thousands of years prior. Thousands of years prior. And he says the word is near. We understand from the New Testament that the word is Jesus. The book of John begins, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word. So he's saying thousands of years, the word is near. It is in your mouth and in your heart. We don't have to go up into the heavens, down into the depths. And then he continues. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What he's doing, he's, he's expanding on these things that were written thousands of years before, saying it is with your mouth and it is with your heart. And he says, with your mouth you confess Jesus is Lord, with your heart you believe. And then what he does in verse 10 is he flips those around. Instead of mouth and heart, he flips it to heart and mouth. He says in verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It is with your heart first. He actually flips it around to be the natural order. First he connects with the Deuteronomy passage. Then he flips it around and says, this is the way it works, however. We believe first, then we confess with our mouth. We believe with our heart, then we confess with our mouth. That's what happened with Thomas. Thomas touched Jesus and believed that he truly had resurrected from the dead. And do you remember what he said? My Lord and my God. He believed with his heart, and then the next step was confessing with his mouth, my Lord and my 
God. It is the resurrection that catapults us into that. It is the pivotal thing. I want to read a a paragraph from a classic book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And uh, I think it's amazing that the guy who, who invited us into Narnia also writes such a logical book. If you're into kind of a logical breakdown of the basics of faith, the first few chapters are a little bit trudging. It's a kind of set in the stage, but this is a classic great book. Let me read just one paragraph. It says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. (laughs) I love English humor. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Either we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, we have wrestled with the evidence, we have processed through the questions, and we have landed on Jesus rose from the dead, and then we confess with our mouth, therefore, Jesus is Lord. Or he's a lunatic for saying the things that he said. C.S. Lewis is saying there's no middle ground There's no middle ground. So if we say, if you say, Jesus is Lord, then may we stop complaining about how he's choosing to run things. May we stop complaining about saying, why did Jesus not get involved with this? Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about this? If Jesus is Lord, then may we stop assuming we could do a better job of running the world and simply say, Jesus is Lord. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whether I understand it or not. Yes, sir. There's two ways to respond to the idea of Jesus being Lord, to defining the relationship as Jesus is Lord. Either we believe in the resurrection or we don't. If you have come to the point recently where you have believed in the resurrection... Maybe it's been part of our journey this year, part of the AD t- uh, journey last week, a few months back or whatever, where you've said, you know, I, I, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. If that has been a part of your journey, or perhaps that's where you are right now, that this morning you're saying, you know what, I, I've got enough information. I don't need to go up into, into heaven and ask God. I have enough information. Jesus is Lord. Then I want to give you an opportunity this morning to make that confession to God. And that is the process that we say we shift from being one of the 12 to being a follower, a Christian, saying Jesus is the Lord of my life. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. If, however, you have said for a long time or you've said for a while Jesus is Lord, have you ever thought about the significance of that word, of Jesus being 
Lord. Jesus is king. He's king of all kings. He is the commander-in-chief. He's the captain. He is the supreme authority. And so how do you respond to him? We're going to have an opportunity this morning to respond to God in a number of different ways. Um, There are a number of different stations throughout the uh, room here. The band is going to come up and lead us in a couple songs. These uh, options are listed in your program. If you're new with us, you can just check those out and feel free to ask people around you what might be going on here. A number of different ways for you to reflect on what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Or, of course, you can just sit where you are and just reflect on that. But I also want to give those of you an opportunity who perhaps have never confessed Jesus is Lord, but you believe in the resurrection. And that is the process that we say to become a Christian. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Everybody in the room, just, just bow your heads and close your eyes. Even if you're not into praying or whatever, just, if you just would, out of respect for those around you. And if, if that's you, either today or the last week or in the past few months, you have come to the point of saying, yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and you are at a place where you are ready to confess, Jesus is Lord, he's the Lord of your life, then would you just indicate where you are with a raised hand? See in the front, to my right, this number. Keep your hand up, please, so I can see way in the back. Yes, sir, to my left. Way in the back to my left, in the front. Wonderful, you can put your hands down. Let me pray with you. God, I pray for those who raised their hands. You know what's going on in their heart. You know if there's been some journey that has uh, been quite a while that has led up to this moment here today. Or if there was something happening right now, God. These are folks who are saying, I've tried to do this on my own. I've tried to be the Lord of my own life and I can't make it work. So Father, I pray for those who raised their hand that they would be able to say today on for the rest of eternity, Jesus is Lord. That because Jesus rose from the dead, he is the, the one who can restore our relationship with God. So that those who raise their hands say, I want to have a restored relationship with God through Jesus because he is Lord. God, I pray for each person here in the room that we would embrace the idea of Lord, that we would just be careful with our rebelliousness when it comes to standing before the creator of the universe, that we would surrender, that we would bow, that we would be able to truly embrace Jesus, you are Lord. So I invite you all with your, with your eyes closed and your head bowed, whether you have confessed that a long time ago or you've confessed that just today, I want you to say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Just say it right now. Jesus is Lord. Say it again. Say it one more time. Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is. Let us worship him.